This episode is brought to you by our partners at Workplace Law. Welcome to the Female Athlete Project, Season 2. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist in Rugby Sevens and I'm now playing for the GWS Giants in the AFLW. I started TFAP to share the stories of incredible female athletes and to address the gender inequalities that exist within the sports media space. We want to change that story and we're all about making news and highlights of women's sport easily accessible across our platforms. Our hope is that more female athletes will become household names and in turn enable the next generation of young kids to pick up a ball, racket, bat, board, whatever they want to pick. Rebecca Stott was born in New Zealand, where she spent the first 11 years of her life before moving across the ditch to Australia. She grew up passionate about sport and showed serious talent on the soccer field from a young age. She captained the green and gold as a junior footballer before switching allegiances and committing to the country of her birth. Stott has represented the football ferns 81 times, been to two World Cups, two Olympic Games and travelled the world plying her trade in Australia's A-League, in Germany, the United States, Norway and most recently England. Off the field, Stott faced what could be described as her greatest challenge early in 2021. In February, Stotty was diagnosed with stage 3 Hodgkin's lymphoma. As a fit and healthy 27-year-old elite athlete, she was used to facing many physical and mental challenges, but nothing could prepare her for her cancer battle. After an aggressive chemotherapy treatment program, she was given the amazing news in July that she was in remission. Stotty took part in the world's greatest shave and has launched a project called Beat It by Stotty, which aims to provide a modern cancer pack, a bag with specific compartments and items to support fellow patients through their cancer journey. She got back on the pitch from Melbourne City at the start of this month. It was 348 days since her last game of football and 294 days since her cancer diagnosis was confirmed. Stoddy wants to raise awareness for blood cancer to support others going through their own battle and use her story to help inspire as many people as possible. She's a bloody legend and I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Rebecca Stott, welcome to the Female Athlete Project. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to having a chat. Can you tell us to start off a little bit about your first game back in the, well, now the A-League W, is that right? That they've rebranded. A-League Women, I think. <laughs> A-League Women, yeah. It's okay. so complicated. Um, yeah, it is a little bit. Um, can you tell us about your first game back um, against Canberra uh, over the weekend? Yeah, it was amazing to be back on the field again. Um, I got 60 minutes in my legs, which was good, better than I expected. Um, and we won, so always hard to win away at Canberra with their crowd um but no it was it was so nice to be back on the field with the girls we often start these interviews by heading back and looking at uh, um people's childhood and, and kind of a little bit about how you grew up so can you tell us about um growing up over in New Zealand and how you kind of first found soccer I was I think four four years old when I started playing soccer. So I have four brothers um, and I'm the only girl in the family. So I think it was just given that I was going to be a little um, tomboy and sports person. So, um, yeah, I just went along with them and found that I was actually really good at it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I loved being outside as a as a young little kid and just playing in the streets and doing whatever. So I think, yeah, it was it was a good childhood I had. 
Oh, New Zealand often known for the love of rugby. How was it that you um, came to, to soccer? Or do you call it soccer or football? Where do you sit with that? Oh, we're technically supposed to call it football now. It depends who you're talking to, though, because okay. I mean, there's so many footballs here, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how, how was it that you came to find football? Um, I mean, I followed the All Blacks when I was younger. I would always watch them with my dad. I'd be like, oh, come on, the All Blacks. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It just naturally happened that we were into soccer um, instead of rugby. Um, and I don't, I don't think there was a lot of, like, girls rugby teams out there when I was little. Um, it wasn't really an option, I don't think. So um, I think it was, yeah. The fact that there was no opportunities, then I was forced to go into soccer. Um, and I read in an article that for you, you didn't even, even in soccer, you didn't really have role models that, that you could see from New Zealand or Australia that you could look up to at that point. Was it, you almost wanted to represent USA and, and China, is that right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there wasn't any real attention on uh, football players, like female football players um, in New Zealand or Australia. And so- I mean, I looked up to people like Marta um, and just some great players from the USA. And so when I was in, I think, primary school, I had to do a speech and I said, oh, when I'm older, I want to play for the USA or China because they're like the best teams in in the world. Um, Little did I know I couldn't do that, but yeah. (laughs) And then when you were 11 years old, um, you guys moved over to Australia. How has that moved to a completely new country as, as a little kid? Yeah, I mean, mum and dad went for a holiday to visit dad's brother and it was on the sunny coast. So they obviously fell in love with the place and they came back and they're like, we're moving. And I was like, no, I don't want to move. Um, and then literally like a couple of weeks later, we were on a plane moving across to Australia, which was, it was wild. Um, and then I think I went into my last year of primary school here. So that was, that was tough to go into a brand new school and then have to go to a whole new school the year after. Um, but, I mean, Australia is great. It's given me a lot of opportunities. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been so cool to be able to come from two separate countries and really have a lot of love for both. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really special. So at that point when you'd moved over, were you already starting to get serious about soccer? I mean, I would be playing pretty much every day. Um, training and yeah different different types of training like Brazilian soccer and um, just club training and everything so I think yeah ever since I was little it was always this is going to be my job Um, I'm going to do this forever Um, and then yeah when I got to Australia it was kind of like reps and then can I get into good programs and I think by the time I was 14 I was in the QAS in Queensland and that was five nights a week training down in Brisbane. So, I mean, my parents were driving an hour and a half to two hours each way um, to get me to training every night of the week. So it was pretty full on after that. Yeah. Wow. Do you, when you reflect on that stuff, cause I often, now that I'm an adult, you kind of realize what a commitment that is from your parents. Is that something like with age and, and a bit more perspective, you've been super grateful for the contribution they've made? Absolutely. Um, I think if they didn't, do that then I don't think I'd be where I am today like if I wasn't in that program if they weren't driving me every night like I'm so grateful because it's allowed me to really become the player that I am right now I think that's really cool so your 
W League, it was called W League at the time, debut when you were 18 years old. Is that right? Yeah. How did that feel to have your first crack at, at professional soccer? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I think I moved down to Melbourne, um, played for the victory here. Um, it was so cool. I had a few friends from the youth national teams and I absolutely loved it. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like I literally get to get to play football or soccer for a living well back then it was like a hundred bucks a game or something (laughs) so I mean it just shows how far it's come but I was still like oh I actually get paid for this this is so cool yeah um so it was it was sick and then ever since then I'm like yeah this is what I'm doing and so when you're coming through your youth years you're representing Australia and then at the senior level you represented New Zealand can you talk us through that decision and that we did you have a feeling of being torn between the two countries yeah um so I played for the under 17 and under 20 Australian youth teams and um, I had such a great time um there and then I guess the opportunity came up to go trial in New Zealand for the for the senior team and I think I was I might have been 18 at this time and I was like well this is such a good opportunity and they were going to the Olympics later that year so I was like you know what if I work hard, if I show, I can I can get to those Olympics. Um, and sure enough, I did. I went over. I loved it. I loved the girls. And, um, yeah, I went to the Olympics and <laughs> the rest is history. I've been there for ages and I absolutely love playing for the Ferns. It's amazing. I love how casual that was. Like, yeah, I went and then I went to the Olympics. <laughs> how good. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Can you tell us a bit about um, your experience at your very first Olympics? Was it something that you dreamt about since you were a little kid? Oh, yeah. I think that was like one of the, the the biggest goals in my mind was if I'm an Olympian, I've made it. Like whatever happens, I've made it. Um, I mean, it was it was such an amazing experience. I think London was – it was incredible. Um, it was so organised and everything and I've got two good stories from there actually. Um, oh, please, please I played, share. played Sting Pong with Neymar. Do you know Neymar? Yes. Yeah, so that's my claim to fame. Um, Amazing. And then, yeah, I got a sneaky kiss off Russell Brand at the closing ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> which was, Where was um, he? He was he was performing and then after it all finished, um, he was like just walking off and I was like, oh, Russell, can I have a kiss? <laughs> he gave me a kiss on the cheek. I was like, yeah. <laughs> a little like 19-year-old. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> very, very cool. Um, and then how did that shift then to head to your second Olympics um, over in Rio? What was it like? Did you feel like you had grown up a little bit more, had a bit more perspective by the time you got over there? Yeah. I mean, it was a very different experience for me. Uh, London, I wasn't playing. So I was a bench player, which um, was fine. I was so young. Um, so I got to really enjoy being there. Um, but Rio was a lot different. I was just coming back from an injury, a stress fracture. Um, so I didn't really get to enjoy it as much. However, I was playing and I mean, that was, it was still an amazing experience. We had a really tough group, but, um, yeah, it was a, it was a hard one to be honest. Um, but, but I'm so thankful to be there. Like it's, it's still incredible. I'm interested about this transition from sitting on the bench to kind of earning a solid spot in the starting lineup what was it for you like physically or mentally that you felt kind of got you to the point to to earn your spot um I think just experience uh I hadn't played a lot I had kind of just 
I was very like new in the team. Um, and then I think I was just able to prove myself and really fight for a spot and earn it um, by my performances. Uh, and then obviously the coach believing in me to really step up and, and get a starting position. You've had a pretty amazing career in terms of where you've been able to travel and, and play. So you've had played in Germany, US, Norway, and most recently England. Is that right? If I tick them all off? Yeah. What do you think that's taught you being so far away from home? Um, what have you learned through, I guess, those experiences being overseas? I think I've got a lot of independence um, and, yeah, just, I guess, learning to deal with things by myself, but also it's taught me to lean on people mm. um, in terms of supporting, like your family and friends, like no matter where you are in the world, you've always got them just on the other end of the phone. Um, so I think, yeah, really just making sure that I had a really good support network and and keeping them close. And so in June of last year, was it before you were about to head back over to, mm-hmm. to England, um, you noticed a lump near your collarbone. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first noticed that? Yeah, um, it was actually... I think it was October the year before. I oh, first wow, okay. Was, I first was like, hmm, what's this? It was weird. Yeah. And then it kind of went away. I didn't think anything of it. And then June, I I was in lockdown here in Melbourne and um, I kind of felt something. And I was like, have I done a weird push-up or something and just pulled a muscle or whatever? Um, and so I went and got it checked out and um, had a – biopsy which showed nothing really crazy they weren't really sure what it was but the doctor was pretty much like ah oh, if it grows then go get it checked again but it it's it should be fine um so yeah and then i headed over to england and then started growing again <laughs> and what so then it started growing and what was kind of the next steps from there yeah so uh once it got pretty big it was like yeah, decent size. Like you can tell that something's not right. Um, mm. Then I, I tried to get into the doctors to see there in England, um, which was a process in itself. Like I had to register for the for the actual, um, oh, what do you call it, clinic, then get to see a doctor and then I had to go get a biopsy and everything kind of had a month in between it. So then oh, I got wow. the biopsy then I had to go see the specialist where I thought I was finding out the the results and then they're like oh it's actually inconclusive um we're sending it off for further tests and then i had to wait another month and then they were like so i, w- I would work myself up going into these appointments thinking yeah i'm going to find out what's wrong um and then again to not know and then they say oh, actually we're going to send you to surgery for them to actually take a bit of tissue out. that's why i've got this lovely scar wow <laughs> um and so they took it out and then um sent it off for tests uh, and then obviously I'm waiting for the phone call to kind of tell me what it is and then again it's oh we're we're not 100% sure but we're going to send it off for more tests and I'm like oh my gosh just tell me do you think it's this and they were like we're pretty sure it's lymphoma we're just not sure what type and where and so once I heard that I was like get me on a plane I'm going home um, and so then yeah I was in quarantine yeah, when I got the final results that it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, 
yeah, so that was the process. It was it was pretty frustrating, and that was probably one of the hardest things was just not knowing what exactly it was. How was it like sitting in that feeling of constantly waiting and the fear, like the fear of the unknown, is so scary, right? Because you're just like having in your head, like what it what is it going to be? Yeah, how exactly. is that feeling? It was really hard um, because like you know something's not right. You Physically, I felt fine. I felt all good. It was just there's a massive lump on my neck. Um, and so, I don't know, like knowing I couldn't do anything to hurry up the process and just literally being in the hands of the testing people or whatever, um, it was it was really hard. And I think once I did get the, the final results, I was just like, at least I know now. Like it was kind of relief. Like, I know what it is. Now I can go and fix it. And so you were in hotel quarantine when you finally got the official results. Yeah. Yeah. And so were you in a hotel room on your own trying to process this nah, information? I had my friend there, which was good. Um, okay. So at least I had someone with me, which was, which mm. was good. I mean, I was a hundred percent sure that I had cancer at that stage. I had talked wow. to the oncologists in uh, Peter Mac here in Melbourne. Um, and they were actually really good. they they put me at ease. They were like, okay, this is fine. You're an athlete. You're going to get through this. No worries. Um, so I think talking to them also helped. Um, and they were, yeah, they were just extremely helpful. And they just gave me a bit of clarity and just sense of comfort that they were going to look after me and I'd be absolutely fine. Yeah. Wow. So coming out of hotel quarantine, what were the next steps? from there in terms of treatment? Um, actually, one question they asked me when I was in hotel quarantine because I did like a telehealth and they were like, oh, do you want to have babies? I was like, what? <laughs> I got cancer. I'm not like, what are you talking about babies for? <laughs> um, and so once I got out, I had to go start with IVF. So wow. just in case if I lost my fertility during mm. treatment that I would have that option. Um so I started IVF and did a whole cycle of that. I luckily had really good results and I got to freeze 27 eggs. Wow. Um, and then after I had finished that, that's when I started with the chemo, um, which was about four months long. Um, yeah, so that's that. Far out. And, and what does a typical day look like when you have to head in and, and have your chemo treatment? Um, so I would have a 21 day cycle. So the first week it would be three days in, well, not hospital, but like I would go in for the day one, I'd get three different types of chemo. That was my hardest day. Um, it would be five to six hours sitting there and you get different types. Um, and then, yeah, I'd feel pretty crook after that one, especially the last drug that would go in you'd get this massive hold uh, head cold across the front of your head and just was not fun like you'd feel so sick after that one um and then pretty much get home and just sleep all night like I mean the first the first cycle I was extremely sick that night once I got home I tried I felt okay and I tried to eat some toast 10 minutes later I just went white and I was like nah I need to go throw up and then I, I just, that was not fun um yeah not good and then the next day I had to go back in to get more but that one was like an hour or two so it's just a 15 minute um 
two different times, um, which which was okay. I felt a lot better that day. And then third day, the same thing. Then you have a few days off, and then the next week on Tuesday you come back in, um, and then you're pretty much that's it. So four days in, and then you wait until your 21 days is up, and then you start again. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. They they told me that the third week would be my better week, but it was definitely not. That's when um, it it's weird because you're not in the hospital at all. You don't. You don't have any appointments or anything. It's just your levels, your body is so shook and you're right down here and then mm. you just you just feel like absolute crap. Whoa. Um, and I've heard you describe Hodgkin's lymphoma as kind of like the, the good cancer because it's treatable and you obviously had incredible support through, through Peter Mac and, and things like that. So were, even though you had that confidence from that end, was there, like, did you have moments where you were fearful and, and kind of questioned whether it was working or it was going to work? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's going to question that and be like, well, what if it doesn't actually help me? I think there was a, a time where my lump wasn't going down and I was like, oh, like, is it working? And I think I had a PET scan after my second cycle and I was like, waiting for those results to see if it was had kind of like made a difference and um I was just like I just felt like it's it's not gonna have worked and so that those moments were really scary for me um just not knowing if I was getting better and then I got the results and they said like it's it's actually really working like there's not much left which was a big relief um but yeah definitely scary moments for sure now for a quick halftime break Workplace Law is a law firm focused on supporting and empowering female athletes to take control of their careers. If you can't afford an agent or would like to manage your own career, Workplace Law would love to help you. They provide female athletes with guidance through the complexities of player contracts, negotiations and sponsorship agreements, personal brand building, mentoring with on and off field careers, crisis management and work with individuals to ensure they respond to incidents and media stories in an appropriate manner and advice and representation in disciplinary hearings and tribunals. Find out more at www.workplacelaw.com.au. Were you able to do any much exercise while you were going through your treatment? Not really. Um, I think it's different for everyone. They say, like, some people can jog and still do stuff, um, but I, uh, I couldn't. They um, say to keep your heart rate below 160 and <laughs> walking around the block, I would be dizzy. And um, if I tried to walk upstairs, my heart rate would shoot up to 160, 170. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. <laughs> I think going Whoa. from like being an athlete to being able to keep your heart rate really high and then working hard and then being walking and your heart rate's high, it's like, whoa, like how am I ever going to get back to being okay yeah how did that feel because as an athlete it's always about like the work that you've put in enables your body to perform and do all these things and have fitness and then something's thrown at you where you don't have any control over being able to like alter your body how did that feel it was really hard um I don't know I feel like I've always thought oh my body's amazing like it's it's got me through everything but then to go from from that to 
literally struggling to go for a walk around the block. It was it was really hard. I was like, what is wrong with me? Like obviously there's a lot wrong with me, but um yeah, it was it was so hard. Um even like after I was finished with treatment, uh trying to get back to an okay level, I would still walk and it shoot up and it's just like, oh my gosh, how am I ever gonna get back? This is crazy. Mm. Um, mm. but yeah, I think it's just trusting the process and, and giving it time. That's really helped me. Um, I read one of your blogs about your zoom call when you found out that you were uh, in remission. Can you, um, can you talk to that, that call a little bit and how that felt? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I was pretty certain that I was going to be in remission just from previous meetings and stuff. Um, but he's like, yeah, no, you're, you're in complete remission. He's pretty casual. My doctor, he's, he's pretty funny. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best news. Um, I was so happy. I was just like, this is over, <laughs> even though it's not really over, but, um, mm. it's like, at least now my body is healed. I don't have any cancer left. Like I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, it was, it was just so much relief. Yeah. That's huge news. And then I wanted to read a quote of something you wrote I think it was your following blog post about kind of getting back to normal life after that you said it's hard to return to normal life and once you're in remission I feel as though not only do others expect you to be fine but you put a lot of pressure on yourself to be too I think the best way to describe it is being stuck in a hole and while it takes some time to return to normality you can dig yourself deeper into that hole by putting pressure on yourself that's like an incredible way to articulate that feeling how did you kind of process that and eventually get yourself out of that hole without putting pressure on yourself to be okay and and to feel good all the time? Yeah. I think like I wasn't expecting that time to be hard and as hard as it was, like I really struggled through those months after being in remission. Like, I don't know, your brain doesn't work. Like, I can be talking to someone and then I totally lose the focus of what I was talking about. And I'm like, what? Um, And so to really get myself out, I think I just had to be like, well, you know what? This is going to be hard. I've just got to be patient. I've just got to not put too much things on in my day. I just need to focus on myself and just really be patient. And, um, And I had a lot of help. Um, from PFA and and my friends and family, like the support has been unreal. Um, but yeah, um, I think it's just all about patience and just being kind to yourself, I guess. I'd love to chat about your return to training. How did that go? Kind of that <laughs> process to prepare yourself to play soccer again? <laughs> oh my gosh, it was really hard. Um, I would run. <laughs> I would try do gym. I would, I would do all this stuff. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is so hard. And so I I went to see my doctor and and, an exercise physiologist and he really helped me put a program in place where I would build up my heart rate, but not, not take it too far and kind of get some shorter intense stuff going. So I was like week one, I couldn't get it over 160 my heart rate. And then the next week I could go 170 then 180 and then once I like got to 190 or whatever I was like free to go but it was it was really hard because obviously my whole body has not done anything for a long time now 
Um, and so I had no muscle, I had no fitness, no nothing. So it was, it was really hard to try and, um, be patient with that, but then also know that I need to get back. I need to get fit. I need to get stronger. Um, but yeah, I mean, once I got into training at Melbourne city, it was a bit easier, but I mean, each week it's like, Oh, now my calf's pulling up. Now my other one's gone. And now my hamstring, like each week it's something new. And I'm just like, this is so annoying, <laughs> but I think it's, it's kind of showing me the importance of gym. I um, don't really like gym. So I often take it quite easy, but now <laughs> I'm like, I really need to get in there and it's actually going to help me. So I think the fact that I know it's going to help me, I'm like, okay, I, I got to do it. Um, but it, it's been a struggle. That's for sure. Did you struggle to balance between like wanting to push yourself, but then having to recognize that your body just wasn't ready for some things yet? Yeah. Um, I think like I was trying not to push myself too much because I knew that my body's different now. Um, it takes me, a lot longer to recover um, from things like say beforehand, it would take me one or two days to recover from a game. Now it takes me a good three, four days. And I'm like, I think it's, it's shown me that I need to really be careful and need to recover. Right. I need to be doing all the right things that I can possibly do to make sure that my body can recover and put me in the best position to, to keep training and to keep playing. And how have Melbourne been just in terms of adapting that to allow you to kind of have a more individualized approach to what you're doing and, and your return to play? Yeah, they've been really good. Um, I think it's it's really hard because I don't think really many people have had to deal with or manage someone who's come back from chemotherapy. It's very different. Yeah. It's very rare in the kind of football world or just athletes in general I talked to one of my friends who had breast cancer in England who plays for Arsenal and she was like one of my biggest struggles was people don't know how to get you back from it um and so it is hard and I think we're both like the club and myself are learning what what needs to happen um to manage me but they've been great like they're like you need a day off you take a day off um they're really, really good with that. So it's it's been helpful that we're on the same page with that. Um, yeah. Um, every week I have a question from my grandma and from a six-year-old. Oh, cute. Might go the question from Frida first, six-year-old Frida. Hi, Rebecca. Did you wear any fun wigs when you shaved your hair? No, I didn't wear any funny wigs. I did, however, when I, when I had my greatest shave party um I made everyone wear weird as stupid wigs so that I didn't seem like <laughs> the idiot shaving my head um I love that yeah it's, it was actually really cool um made me more comfortable which was which was amazing that's really cool was there one point where you had a mullet as part of that shave <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was awful I think I did like trivia and whoever got the the most like points got to choose a um haircut and so it was my best friend and so she chose the mullet and I was like you're an idiot but it was actually really cool <laughs> how long did the mullet last for 10 seconds <laughs> oh okay it wasn't a long term <laughs> no 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 just, just <laughs> as we were cutting it off <laughs> question from my granny 
Hi, Rebecca. How has the past 12 months changed your perspective about life? I think it's changed. I don't know. This is hard because I tried to, like, not change too much, but I think it's definitely made me want to really enjoy my life more um, in terms of experiences and doing really just what I want to do. So, yeah, I think just, just enjoying life more. Yeah, I like that. Moving forward, so we've got World Cup. It's going to be on home soil, both in Australia and New Zealand. So you're a big part of that bid, um, having having played for both countries. What does it mean to you? Like if you look back to you as a little kid that didn't get to see any role models from your own country, what does it mean to have the opportunity to to play on home soil of both countries? Yeah, um, it's going to be incredible. I, I don't think um, – some people realize how huge it is. Like this is literally one of the biggest events in the world, Um, a World Cup. Uh, There's going to be so many people coming from internationally, COVID allowing. Um, (laughs) Yes. But no, like it's going to be massive and I think it's going to show New Zealand in particular like how big women's sport is getting. And I think we have the Cricket World Cup and the Rugby World Cup as well. and so women's sport in the in the country is just going to explode. Um, so it's it's going to be so massive. What has your experience been as a female athlete heading over um, to play overseas? Has there been anything in particular that you've noticed in terms of inequalities that exist? Uh, definitely. Like I think every, every place is different. Um, but I don't know. I think we're so far behind the men's game still. Every every place you go to, you experience that. Um, you can be in one of the best leagues in the world and still you don't get anywhere near what the guys are um, given in terms of the environment, uh, the training grounds. Um, I think it's come a long way and a lot of clubs are doing it right and they're, they're striving to get the same, to get the same kind of situations as the boys. Um, yeah the same environment as the boys. Um, but yeah, there's so far to go and to get, to get all the clubs up to that, that level. Like you've got the Manchester city, Arsenal, Chelsea, all those clubs, they've got the same facilities and everything. And I think as, as, um, as the game grows, it's just going to get better and better. And most clubs will be affiliated with the boys and it will be the same standards. It will be amazing. Do you think that it's almost lagging a little bit? Because if you look at women's soccer on the whole, like if you look at um, how dominant the US women's national team have been, not just on the field but in in their ability to create change away from the field, you look at the way Matildas have performed, the way you guys as a, a country have performed in New Zealand, like how do you – do you think it's kind of like, all right, guys, like time to catch up, like – women's sport is actually making moves here and we're drawing big crowds, mm-hmm. getting good broadcast numbers. Cause I think traditionally that's what we would hear, right? Like I know for yeah. me as a female athlete, I'm always here, like no one comes to watch, no one watches it on TV, mm-hmm. but the stories change. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, when's the, when's the point you guys are going to kind of catch up and, and get the ball rolling on that? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think people are starting to realize, I don't think they're realizing fast enough. Um, but the, yeah, 
I mean, we get the numbers in the crowds, we get the the views. Um, so I think it's just businesses coming to the table, um, federations coming to the table and really giving female athletes what we deserve and making it better for us. And I think that will help grow the sport, grow women's sport and inspire young girls and boys that, damn, these girls are amazing. I'm going to be like them. Yeah, it's cool. I like that. What are your biggest goals over the next 12 months? Um, 12 months. I think getting fit and healthy is my number one priority at the moment. Um, getting to a stage where I'm better than I was before all this happened. I think that's one huge one. I really want to become better. I want to be better than I left it kind of thing. Um, I want to win W League. Sorry, A League W. <laughs> A League woman. Um, and, yeah, I just want to grow. And also I want to grow beat it. Um, I really want to help inspire more people and really give back to all the support that I got when I was going through it all. Um, so those are my personal ones at the moment, really. I actually, yeah, I really wanted to touch on Beat It. So that's where you obviously were writing your blog post, but you've also created um, these cancer bags and, and packs to help people who are going through cancer. Can you tell us a bit about how the idea came about and what it involves? Yeah. Um, so I was going to the hospital and everything and I was so unorganized. I had all my paperwork everywhere and I was like, oh, this is a nightmare. So I was like, I need a bag where I'm like, this is my specific cancer bag. I can take it to all my appointments and I deserve it. I'm going through something crap, so why not? Um, so that's where the idea came from, to make a specific bag. And so I filled it with all things that helped me go through uh, when I was going through it. So like body body soap and really, really good stuff. Um, and so, yeah, you can buy it for your friend who's going through cancer or something similar um, or you can just buy one and we'll distribute it to a cancer patient. Um, so, yeah, I think just trying to have something for people who are newly diagnosed so that it, it gives them a sense of comfort and just helps them kind of go through what I went through. Yeah. Wow. And what are your, like, what's your personal goal to, as you talk about growing beat it, what do you mm -hmm. want to um, keep doing in that space? Um, I just want to, I guess, give awareness, but also help people see the positives to their bad situation. Um, yes, it's, it's a crap time. It sucks. But if you can find the positives and try and have a good mindset around it, then it makes it easier and it, it, yeah, it, it helps you. Yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to be doing, we've got a summer merch third drop, which I think by the time this episode goes live, we'll be live and we're going to be also donating 10% to these packs. So we're going to donate and, and then you guys will be able to distribute those to, to cancer patients who will be able to use the bags, which is really cool. So I'll make sure we've got the link for that. And I'll also make sure we've got the link for beat it in the show notes as well. So people can check out the incredible work that you're doing there too. Um, before we finish off, I wanted to come back to what you were just saying before about being better. What is it that, what's it going to take for you to be better than what you were before how do you how do you measure that um I think just making an impact on the field um really really um looking after my body making sure I'm in the best 
just making sure I'm in the right possible state um, to really play my best football I've ever played and, yeah, just be stronger and and really dominate. Yeah, cool. I like that. Getting swole in the gym too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> as much as I hate it, I would really try. Yeah, cool. I like that. I finish off every interview with three would-you-rather questions. Oh, gosh, here we go. <laughs> All right, so a couple of your good mates are um, – Aussie or Matilda's Steph Catley and Lydia Williams. So my first one is, would you rather have to beat Steph in a one-on-one race for the ball or score a goal with Lydia in goals? I think I'd rather score a goal against Lydia (laughs) just so I can (laughs) rub it in her face. Yeah, good. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Number two, would you rather toast with Vegemite or Marmite? Definitely Marmite, of course. Oh, no, of course that's your answer. It's no good. It's not oh, the same. It's so much better. <laughs> um, and number three, would you rather win a World Cup on home soil or win gold at the 2024 Olympics? Oof, I think World Cup. I think that's the, the pinnacle of our sport. That's the, that's the biggest one. Um, Ah, oh, and especially because it's at home, I think that would be done. Life's over. It's it's perfect. Cool, very cool. Tick that off. I love that. Um, thank you so much, Dotty, for coming on for a chat today. It was really cool to hear a bit about your story and about your childhood and and about your last, I guess, twelve months and everything that you've been through and the way that you've, I guess, stayed positive through it, but also then being able to launch, beat it, and helping other people go through something similar is really incredible. So, um, yeah, congrats on everything that you're continuing to achieve in that space. It's really, really cool. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for donating that 10%. I can't wait to get some stuff as well from the project. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you got something out of this episode, I would absolutely love it if you could send it on to one person who you think might enjoy it. Otherwise, subscribe, give us a review and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Female Athlete Project to stay up to date with podcast episodes, merch drops and of course, news and stories about epic female athletes.